Uh, amen. And amen. Isaiah chapter 6. One of these rare times that we get a, a glimpse into the very throne room of God. There, there's another time in Ro Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we see the same very similar event uh, take place in Revelation chapter 4 where John the Revelator goes into the very presence of a holy and righteous God again and, and he hears these same words from the same creatures saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. In Isaiah's case, we get a, a little bit more detail into the very throne room presence itself. Uh, when does this take place? What, what time in history does this event take place? It, it, it happens right after the death of one of the kings of Israel. Look at what the very first verse says. In the year... That King Uzziah died. What has just happened in the life of Israel, the nation of Israel? What has just happened? King Uzziah has died. Now, this can shake a kingdom. This can shake a nation as with any of our presidents that die or anything like that or a king dies or a queen dies, someone, someone in a position of power uh, dies, what happens within the nation? And people go to the, the funeral. They remember the greatness of this king. We, we find out who King Uzziah was if you turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Uh, just a, a couple of hundred pages if you turn to the left in your Bibles. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we, we find what it was like to live during the time of King Uzziah. And king Uzziah was one of the godly men, uh, the godly kings within the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, there was a materialistic revival in the land. The borders of Israel were expanding. Uh, he brought great wealth within the nation of Israel, second only to David and Solomon. In verse 3 of chapter 26, we read this. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? Now, all those teenagers just walked out of here. Can you imagine one of them being the king of a nation? Uh, king Uzziah is, is laid with this heavy burden now at the age of 16, ruling the nation of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And he reigned how long? 52 years. This is uh, one of the longest, the second longest of all the kings within Israel's time period. And to put that in perspective, uh, David only reigned for about 20 years. Uh, Solomon reigned for about 40 years. Uh, king Uzziah reigned for 52 uh, years. Uh, 52 plus 16, that means he died at the age of 68. It continues on, verse 4, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. This was a good, godly king. 
He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Verse 6, now he went out, made war against the Philistines, broke down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jebna, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal, and against the Muanites, against the Ammonites, brought a tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly uh, strong. What was it like militaristically to live in the reign of King Uzziah? Who was the winning nation? The Judeans, the Israelites, they were the winning team. In fact, when they went against the Philistines, who won? When they get, went against the Arabians, who won? When they get, went against the Ammonites, who won? It was the uh, Judeans that were winning the battles. Uh, Uzziah brought great militaristic uh, might back to uh, the nation of Judah. It continues on, verse 9. And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the corner buttress on the wall, uh, then he fortified them. How did he fortify them? Also he built towers in the deserts. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains in Carmel, for he loved the uh, soil. Not only did he think of the uh, defensive protection of Jerusalem itself, but he thought of the agricultural prosperity in the land of Israel as well. Now, not only did he fortify the previous broken down parts of the city walls, but he also planted much crop so that people would be fed. It says there at the very last of verse 10 there that he loved the soil. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number of their role as prepared by Jael the scribe and Maaseh the uh, officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. And the total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,000 600 and under their authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with great power to help the king against the enemy. A standing army of over 300,000 men uh, willing to lay their lives down for Israel. And when they went out into the, the battlefield, who won? Yeah, it was the Israelites that, that won. It continues on. Then Uzziah prepared for them for the entire army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, slings to cast stones. He made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. Do you understand what these are? Do you, do you understand the the mechanical marvel of what Uzziah is doing, not only with his army equipping them with the best equipment, but on the very top of all the towers in Jerusalem, if you were a, a, an army coming to attack, you would see those large ballistas on the towers. You would see those large catapults that were pointed at your army. 
uh, these, uh, these devices of war that were used to protect Jerusalem. Uh, this is the revival that Uzziah was bringing to the land. Not only agriculturally, not only in terms of riches, not only in terms of a militaristic might, but in everything to prosper the people of Judah. It continues on there in verse 15. He made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers, the corners, to shoot arrows, large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. This was the pinnacle of what it was like to be in the kingdom during the reign of Uzziah. Prosperity all around until he became strong. Who had helped him to become to this strength of power? Who had helped him to become to this place where he was receiving and being able to provide for the people of Judah? Who helped him during these times? It was God. It was God that helped him. Unfortunately, verse 16 happens. Now, I wish we could stop here at verse 15 and say he was a great king. And yes, he was. But unfortunately, he looked at his own strength. Unfortunately, he looked at the things that he thought he had done for the nation of Judah. Verse 16, it continues on. Remember, this is King Uzziah the one that has just died. Isaiah has gone into the presence of God. His king has just died. Verse 16, what does it say? But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. How horrible is that? All of us have faced this. When we, when we no longer rely upon God, and, it, and I look out at my kingdom, however big it is, even if it's just a, a one-room apartment, I, I look out to my career, whatever it may be, my family, uh, the money in my bank account, whatever it may be, and, and I, I say, look what I have done. And now, King Uzziah, I mean, he had a huge kingdom. He, he had repaired things and built things and, and done things in, in, you know, terms of his nation as a whole. And what did it lead to? His destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God. By entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, we look at this passage and we may say, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about the king, a godly man, having the right to go into the holy place and offer the incense? What's the big deal? You have to understand this is the, the second area within the temple itself. There, there was three parts. There was the outer courts where, where the, the general populace would be. 
And then there was two parts within the temple itself that only the priests could go into. The first part was the holy place. And the priests would go in there literally daily. They would prepare the bread for the show table. They would prepare the incense and trim the wicks on the lampstands that were within the holy place. They would go in and tend to the holy things of God. And then there was, as all of you know, what was called the Holy of Holies. And this place was even more sacred. This place could only be entered once a year by the high priest. And it was the high priest's job to go into this Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice and offer and make sure that the sins of Israel were cleansed. Not only his own sins, but the sins of Israel as well. King Uzziah doesn't go into the Holy of Holies. King Uzziah goes into the holy place. And what does he do? He tries to offer incense. He goes into the holy place on his own terms. I'm the king. I can do this. Look at all the great things I've done for Judah. Look at all the great things I've done for God. Look at my strength, what I have done. Why can't I go into the holy place and offer incense? Verse 17. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron. You're the king. We recognize you as the uh, monarchy. We recognize you as the political power of Judah. But this is not your job. This is the priest's job alone. It is the job of the priests to offer the incense to God. Now, now it's amazing to if you look at the history of Israel, the history of Judah, and, and you see the, this definition or this de defining characteristic between the king and the priest. It's always separate. In every single case, it's always separate, separate within the nation of Israel. There's a king and there's a priest. What tribe must the king come from? He must come from the tribe of Judah, right? Uh, where did the priests come from? What tribe did they come from? They came from the tribe of Levi. Two separate tribes. Uh, two definitions of, of, of genealogy from where they came from. One from the line of David, the other from the line of Aaron. And the priests that are coming against uh, King Uzziah, what are they saying? Only the sons of Aaron are allowed to do this. Only the sons of Aaron are allowed to do this. What are you doing offering incense in the holy place? 
It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary. You have trespassed. Do you, do you understand the authority that the priests are having over and, and yes, he was a good king. Yes, he was a wise king. But what had he done in coming to the holy place? Who defined how to enter the holy place in Uzziah's mind? It was Uzziah himself. And the high priest, Azariah, he's saying, no, this is not how you come before God. Only the priests are allowed to come before God. Only those who are consecrated. Only those who have gone through the ritual steps to cleanse themselves of the sin in their lives, who have confessed their sins, who have provided a way, can do this offering. You have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. And if it had stopped there, if Uzziah had repented and gone out, everything would have been okay. But in verse 19, he doesn't. What is he looking at? His strength, his pride. Look at what? I have done. Verse 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, what does it say? Then Uzziah became furious. Don't you hate that about people? That, that think they're in the wrong. I mean, you know they're in the wrong. But then they accuse you of being in the wrong. They somehow uh, are able to twist the tables, right? And so Uzziah, he becomes furious to the priest. Who are you telling me what to do? I'm the king of Judah. I'm the one that put those ballistas on the towers. I'm the one that put those catapults on the towers. Uh, I'm the one that provides food for your tables. Uh, I'm the one that has a 300,000 man standing army in Judah. He becomes furious. And he had the censor in his hands to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. I'm going to ask you a question. No, all of you know the answer. Who saw the leprosy? Who saw the leprosy? Every single person except Uzziah. Why? It's right there. Who can see it? Everybody except for Uzziah. Everybody saw his pride. Everybody saw his sin. Everybody saw what he was doing was wrong except for whom? Uzziah. And he's the one getting angry, by the way. What are you doing accusing me? 
While he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. What has just happened in Isaiah chapter 6? The leper king has just died. The, the one who decided how he wanted to enter into the holy place. The one who was judged. The, the king, yes, he was a, a, you know, in terms of political power and, and bringing the, the nation of Judah back to a, a, a place of wealth. But in terms of godliness, what had happened in his life? He was judged until the very day he died, known as the leper king. What were the consequences of that leprosy? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, there's a whole chapters upon chapters of what it's like to be a leper. And what were the consequences of being a leper? You could not enter into the assembly. You could not go to anywhere within the temple area. You couldn't go and worship God anymore. You had to stand outside. You had to yell out when everyone passed by you, unclean, unclean. What does, what does Uzziah have to do? It says that in verse 21, he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. For the rest of his life, until he died, he was just a figurehead. He was just known as the leper king. This is the the story, that this is the background. This is what has happened in the life of Judah now as Isaiah comes into the very throne room of God. What has just happened? King Uzziah has just died. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 6. We continue with, with this amazing chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, the leper king has just died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What does Isaiah get to experience? What does Isaiah get to experience? The very throne room of God himself. The holiness of God in all of his majesty. Isaiah gets to come into uh, this very throne room. And what's the first thing he sees? The train of his robe fills uh, the temple. Can you imagine that? Uh, we, we, we have a hard time in our, our culture 
uh, understanding a, a, a monarchy or a, a, a king reign over a nation. But, but if you've ever seen a, a coronation, if you've ever seen a, a king walk down, whether it's the palace walls or, or a, a church or, you know, in, in some kind of a ceremony, what does that king have on his shoulders? This long cape, right? And the, the bottom of that cape, the, the trailing edge of that cape is called the train, uh, you, you see it mostly in, in a wedding, you know, the, the bride's dress, uh, the edge of the, the veil and, and the, the stuff that comes off the, the back of the uh, bride that the, you know, the, the bridesmaid is holding up. What is that called? That's called the train. And so this, this train uh, of the robe of God himself literally fills the temple. What else does Isaiah see? Above it stood seraphim. Now this is the only time in the whole Bible where we have this word seraphim. It's, it's described twice uh, in this chapter. We see the word seraphim twice in this one instance. How does it describe the seraphim? These majestic beings, in fact, one of only two, you know, uh, groups that are categorized in all the, uh, the Bible. We have the seraphim and the cherubim, and, and this is the group called the seraphim. And these seraphim were majestic beings, uh, angels created by God for one sole purpose. And their, their only job, the only thing that they were created for... How does it describe them? With two wings, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said. Now picture what the seraphim look like. How many wings do they have? Six. How many do they need to fly with? Only two, just like hummingbirds, just, just like, you know, birds, you know. They only need two. Why did God create them with six? What do they have to do with the other four wings? They have to cover their eyes. They have to cover their feet in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And they hover around the very throne room of God, these majestic beings, and what do they say over and over and over again? Without boredom, without true, you know, uh, repetition in terms of, you know, a rut, but in true sincerity, over and over and over again saying, holy, holy, uh, holy. What does it continue to say? Is the Lord of hosts. Have you ever thought of the attributes of God? We, we love the attributes of God. We, we, we love his love, right? We, we love his omnipotence and his, you know, omniscience and and all the things that define God. 
There is only one attribute in the whole Bible that is repeated three times. You, you will never find in the Bible, God is love, love, love. Or omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. That would be hard to say. Or, or omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. Or, or grace, grace, grace. There is only one defining attribute, the very, the very base attribute of who God is, that without this attribute, uh, there would be no other attributes of God. By definition, he must be holy. He must be holy. And everything else flows from that. The defining factor to enter the very throne room of God, to be who God is, to, to be who God is in all of his majesty, in all of his being, is his holiness. Now, it's repeated three times. And in the Hebrew, if a, a word is repeated multiple times, there was a, a purpose uh, behind it. Not only for emphasis, but for uh, comparison. We, we have the same thing in our language. We just add uh, different endings to our words. I'm fast. Jimmy is faster, right? And, and then, of course, we can, you know, uh, uh, you know choose someone else. You know, uh, we'll, we'll choose Emmanuel. Emmanuel's the fastest, right? That's what we do. We do that in our language. We understand that. When I say ER at the end of a word, it's a comparison between two different people. When I add EST to the end of the word, it's, it's a superlative. That person is the fastest, right? In the Hebrew language, it's just a repetition. Not only is God holy, not only is God holy, holy, God is holy, holy, holy. He is the holyest. Not only is he holy or holier, but he is the holyest. What the definition of holy means. The very defining factor of what it means to be holy is God. The base attribute of, that defines God in his presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And again, this title is used many times in the Old Testament and it always defines God in the terms of his army. Uh, the hosts of heaven. The Lord of hosts. The one who commands the greatest army in the entire creation. In the entire universe. It, it's the same army uh, that Elijah asked his uh, God to reveal uh, to his servant. Show him the armies that surround me. It, it's the same army that's able with a single angel to devastate the armies of Assyria. It, it's the same angels that Jesus could have called down and taken him from the cross. It's the same angels that we see in the book of Revelation that are going to be raising their hands and praising God, falling down before him. 
This is the Lord of hosts, uh, the Lord of the heaven ar of heaven's armies, much greater than a 300,000-man standing army, by the way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in, in, in other translations, if you look at the actual well, Hebrew here, it says the earth cannot even contain his glory. Or, or if, if his glory were to come to the earth, it would overflow the earth itself. There, there's so much glory, it would overwhelm us as it does to Isaiah. The, the holiness of God shown through his glory and who he is. The very train of his robe filling the temple. The holiness of God radiating out his glory, literally filling the earth. And what happens, verse 4? And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who spoke, and the house was filled with smoke. Who has just spoken? This isn't God. This is the seraphim. When, when the seraphim are speaking, much like the angel in Revelation chapter 10 the, that utters the, the seven thunders and, and you know, uh, the earth shakes, the same thing is happening here. These seraphim that are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What happens to the very foundations of the temple itself? They're shaking. The very place where, where God is, is dwelling at this time is shaking. This, this temple that was built by King Solomon, by the way, is shaking to its very uh, foundations. What does it smell like? We, we, we see the visual, we see the, the glory of God. Uh, we see the train of his robe. We hear the seraphim and, and the, the reverberations, the, the, the sound of what it's like to, to hear holy, 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 literally shaking the temple itself. What does it smell like? What kind of smoke is in this place? What kind of smoke? That's what it says there. Verse 4, at the very end, it says, And the house was filled with smoke. What smoke is coming into the holy place? This is the altar of incense. This is, if you've ever been to a, a Catholic funeral or a, a, you know, a, a Catholic ceremony where, where the priests would have some type of a, of a urn, right? A, a circular object. They would put in the incense. They would close it up and light it. And what do they do? They, they you know, shake this incense, this urn. And what comes out of that incense? Smoke. And what does everyone in that church smell? The incense. It's the same thing in the Jewish ceremony. Exactly the same except for it was on an altar. An 18-inch by 18-inch altar uh, that had a, a special formula uh, of the incense that could only be used throughout all of Israel. Only used for this one 
purpose, to worship God. And, and that smoke is filling the temple, the smoke from the incense. What had Uzziah just done? What had Uzziah earlier in his life done? He had taken that censer. He had filled it with that smoke and he tried to offer it to God. And what had happened to him? Leprosy, middle of his forehead. Cut off from the house of Israel for the rest of his life. Do you understand the trepidation that Isaiah now feels? In fact, in verse 5, we get his very words. What does he say? He, he understands the significance of this. I'm in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Now, I'm in the presence of, uh, uh, of the God that I worship, the God that I've been taught about since my, since my youth, but now I, I'm standing before him in all of his holiness. And what does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me, right? For I am undone. Isaiah knows who he is. He understands that he is not holy. That, that he is a sinner. That he has done sinful things and has no right in his own ability to come before God. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. What is Isaiah saying about himself? I've spoken bad things. I've said bad things. I've lied. I've cheated with my mouth. I've said things that are not true. My lips are unclean. Just like James says in the New Testament, what's the easiest part of the body that can cause sin? It's our mouth, right? So easy, it's untamed, right? And Isaiah understands that. What else does he say? And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Everywhere around me, there's a bunch of liars. In fact, that was the very definition of what it to mean, meant to be an, an Israelite, you know, uh, you know, Jacob being the usurper or the one who, you know, lied to his brother, lied to his dad. And it was a defining factor in the, you know, the culture itself. And, and then to understand that I dwell in the midst of a, a people of unclean lips, why are you calling me before your throne room? Why am I even allowed here? Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, do we take that literally? Do we understand that literally? Yes, we do. What has Isaiah just seen? The glory of God. The holiness of God. He's gotten a, a privilege uh, that only a few people have ever been able to experience. John in the New Testament, uh, Moses earlier in the, the history of Israel, and now Isaiah. 
to be taken into the very throne room of God and to be able to see uh, God himself. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. Now, how does the angel have to touch the coal? How does he get the coal? With tongs. I mean, just like us, right? Would you willingly pick up a live coal? Not, not only just a coal from like a fireplace or a barbecue or an outdoor pit, but, but from the incense table itself, taking a live coal, and what does he do with that live coal? What part of Isaiah's body does he touch? The most sensitive part of any body. The very lips of Isaiah himself. Those parts of our body that are, that are meant for um, very sensitive touching. Something that you would do with your wife or, or something that you would do with your spouse or, or something that you would touch to, you know, something that's in a, a delicate situation. Uh, the very lips of a person, those things where food enters, uh, th those things that are the barrier that keeps out the bad things. And, and what is it that touches those lips of Isaiah? A live coal from the very censer table within the holy place. Can you feel it? Can you imagine it? Can you smell it? What, what that would be like. And the angel touches with this live coal the very lips of Isaiah. And what does he say? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged and we should say with a loud voice amen Isaiah he he had seen what had happened to King Uzziah he had seen what had happened to his king when he entered into uh, the throne room with an unholy attitude with with a I am right everybody else is wrong attitude with pride in his heart and Isaiah he understands I myself need to be clean, cleansed. I myself need to be clean coming before God. And what does the angel say? Your sin has been taken away. Your, your iniquity has been taken away. Your sins have been 
removed. Now, it's, a, it's amazing uh, what, it, what is happening. There, there's two different definitions uh, here, not just, you know, sin in general, uh, but two different types. We, we, we see this word iniquity, uh, a sin that I purposely commit, sin that I have chosen to commit. I say something knowing that when I say it, it is wrong. And then the second category is missing the mark or a sin that, that uh, you know, I, I've just, you know, committed, whether it's accidentally or unintentionally. Both of these categories of sin, iniquity and sin, are purged from Isaiah. What does it continue to say? I, I love this passage because the very definition of what the word purge means goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We have these defining words within the Old Testament uh, that, that, that clarify us in, in stark, very visual imagery of what it is like. This word purge here, or this word uh, forgiven, literally means kafar. And, and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. In fact, uh, let me read for you what Genesis chapter 6 says. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, it says this. And, and you'll know the story right away. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and kafar it inside and out with pitch. What, what does your English word say there? It says cover, right? Now you can imagine this in, in, in terms of the ark itself, Noah and the ark, this huge boat that was built by, ark, uh, by, by Noah taking 120 years. On the outside of this ark, after they had built it with gopher wood, you know, of course, there's, you know, the, the planks and all the, the wood, there's, there's still seams in this ark. And so to make it uh, waterproof, what did Noah put on the outside? pitch or tar and he covers the whole outside he he kafars the whole outside of the ark with this pitch and what does that pitch do as it covers the ark when the rains come and the floods come now the ark will float it, it could have floated for a while without it, right, you know, gopher wood and, you know, wood in general, but what would have happened eventually during those 40 days? Yeah, water would have started sinking in, right, you know, through the little cracks in the gopher wood, right? But, but the pitch, the, the tar was purposely put on the outside of this ark, kafar, covering the outside of the ark. The same exact word, is used here in Isaiah chapter 6, 10 for covering or purging of my sins. I now can float. I now can survive the flood. 
Do you see that picture? Who's inside the ark? Eight people and two of every animal, except for the clean animals, which there's seven pairs of. Those are the ones that are covered or secure or have their, you know, uh, outside of their ark covered with this pitch. This same exact word is used here in Isaiah uh, chapter 6 to describe what it means to be, have our sins taken away and purged. Now what does this lead up all to? And we can stop here if we wanted to, but Isaiah does not. He understands that the only way to enter into the holy place is on God's terms, not mine. Not, not King Uzziah's terms, uh, not, not someone who's made up a bunch of rules, but upon God's terms only can I enter into the very throne room of God. His lips have been touched with that live coal. His iniquity has been taken away. His sins have been purged. And then what happens in the very next verse? And I love this. What does verse 8 say? Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Plural. God is speaking in this, in this us form. And what is he saying to uh, in general? And Isaiah hears this. And what does Isaiah with both hands raised say? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And what does Isaiah do? Here I am. Send me. Do you understand that enthusiasm that comes from knowing that I have been cleansed of my sins? That, that my, my sins have been taken away from me and I, I'm now free of that burden. This now begins the ministry of Isaiah. For the next 60 chapters, the, the longest, you know, recorded prophet that we have in the whole Bible. Uh, preaching to an obstinate people, uh, going through five different kings. The, the, the greatest of all the, the prophets in terms of the, the prof, prophesying of what's going to happen to the Messiah and the Messiah's birth and his, his you know, crucifixion and everything that's in between in his life. To, to stand before a, as he describes it, a, an obstinate people who are a bunch of liars. And then to go before them day after day after day and present now the truth. The truth of God's word and to record it in this amazing book. Here I am, uh, send me. Do you understand what a, a real encounter with a holy and righteous God does to a person's life? Let me say that again. Do you understand 
what a real encounter with a holy and righteous God does with a person's life. It makes them want to go and tell others. It makes them want to go and, and tell other people about their experience in the presence of God. Guess what? You can too. Let me show you the way, right? Turn with me to Ephesians. Now, by the way, I mean, there's, you know, a, a kind of a, a two-parter in this, and you have to come back on Sunday to get the rest of it, and hopefully this will be a good segue here. But, but you know, come back on Sunday because we're actually going to see a different perspective on the throne room of God and what it does in, in a, a person's uh, uh, life as well. But, but the very first aspect of what it does in a person's life coming into the, the very throne room of God, it makes us say, here I am, send me. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, we see this. And I love these two last verses that we're going to be uh, seeing from the book of Ephesians here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, and it says, And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you understand the way that God sees you through his son? How does God see you through his son? In true righteousness and holiness. Do you understand that's what God does when he changes a person's life through the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that kafar. Not, not just pitch. Not just a, a black tar. But the very blood of God or blood of Jesus Christ himself. Covering our sins. His righteousness for my sin. The great exchange. He makes us in true righteousness and holiness. Or if we go back just to the previous verse, probably just one page uh, to the left, at Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 12, it says, In whom we have a boldness and access with confidence through faith in uh, him. Do you understand? Now, Uzziah had boldness. Uzziah had pride. But how did he come before a holy and righteous God? His own way. This is how I'm going to do it, and nobody's going to tell me any difference. The difference between Uzziah and Isaiah is that Isaiah understood who he was standing before. A, a, a holy and righteous God. The, the God who is a holy, holy, uh, holy. Excuse me. <clears throat> Do you understand what we have the privilege being children of God? We now have access 
to the very throne room of a holy and righteous God. There's a great hymn, a great hymn. It's taken from uh, uh, this passage and also from uh, Revelation chapter uh, uh, 4. It goes like this. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. What is happening in the very presence of God over and over and over again? For all of eternity, what is happening in the very presence of God? What are those seraphim doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Over and over and over and over again, proclaiming who God is. His holiness. Holy, holy, uh, holy, merciful and mighty. God in three persons. A blessed uh, trinity. Or verse 3. Holy, uh, holy, holy. Though the darkness hide thee. Though the eye of sinful man uh, thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. Join with me in singing this amazing hymn. It goes like this. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim are falling down before thee. Who wert and art and evermore shalt be. Holy, 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 and though the darkness hide thee, although the eye of sinful men thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, and there is none beside thee. 
in power, in love and purity. Last verse. Holy, holy, oh, holy, Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And so, Father, we thank you. We, we thank you that we have an access to your very throne room. Lord, we ask that we would never have the heart of Uzziah, that we, that we would never try to come to you on our own terms. But help us to be humble and, and understand that it's always through your Son, that it is always because of his holiness that we can come before you. And then we can boldly have access uh, to your throne room. We thank you that you have provided a way we, we thank you that you have provided the way through your son. We thank you that we can come even now here on this earth. Every time we, we talk to you, every time we, we pray, every time we, we bring our, our requests to you, every time we bring our, our thanksgivings uh, to you, every time we bring our sacrifices of praise, we get a glimpse into the very throne room of a holy and righteous God. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us truly to understand the privilege that we have to be called your children and to have access into your very throne room. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you because you are holy, holy, holy. We love you in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen and amen and amen.